Stuffing giant stacks of cash into duffel bags, carrying them down a busy street in a major city, an armed guard following you. You might have seen something like that in a movie, but I bet you've never done it. For John Oram, though, that is, or at least was, his real life. Pretty frequently, he was carrying loads of cash down to the city government offices to pay his taxes. He had to do everything in cash because banks wouldn't touch the money from his business. We put um, over a million dollars into duffel bags. We put them in a chunk of a car. Uh, we did call ahead. The city government knows they're, that we're coming, but they're only going to protect us once we get on their premises. We put it in the car, we drive there, we're, we're carrying duffel bags full of cash, uh, you know, with, you know, in a business district in downtown Oakland, we're walking next to other people and we're carrying millions of dollars in cash. The other thing about this type of scene is that when you see it in the movies, it looks kind of cool, right? I think of Ocean's Eleven when they just robbed the Bellagio vault and they're strolling out the door. It seems pretty slick. But in reality, it's actually not cool. It was a serious problem for John as he ran his cannabis company, Nug. He couldn't get a bank account to pay Nug's bills because most banks are not willing to handle cannabis money. And when there are millions of dollars lying around, things become dangerous, even tragic. Tonight, pot shops targeted by thieves. A security guard was killed. Another man was shot in the chest. In South Los Angeles, four people hit by gunfire at a marijuana dispensary. San Bernardino police say Panetta was gunned down by two men who forced their way into this marijuana dispensary. Travis Mason was working security at the Greenheart dispensary when two masked men shot him. Panetta was working security for the pot shop, protecting a back entrance to the store where the products and money are kept. Transactions with customers, paying vendors and employees, it's all still cash for pot shops. All that was in the back of John's mind as he walked down the street with the bags. And actually, I, I don't like it. I mean, I'm talking about it now. I'm looking back at it like, wow, we did that. But the risk, you know, the personal, forget about the business risk, the personal risk, uh, my life was in danger. You know, nothing happened. Everything was fine. But think about that. You're walking down the street carrying this, you know, and anybody can just come and get you right. You know, uh, it's just it's daunting. If Nug had a bank account, John wouldn't be paying the company's taxes with duffel bags of cash. And he wouldn't be putting his life in danger just to make sure he was paying his bills. Now, with the help of a company he calls a facilitator, He's finally got a bank that will take his cash, but it came with risks of its own. On today's episode of Law 360's Legalization, we talk about why banking is such a problem for an industry expected to reach $45 billion in the next five years. We'll also talk about the risks banks face in taking podcash and the cottage industry that's popped up to bridge the gap. I'm Diana Novak-Jones.
John is a chemistry PhD who got his start in the business developing techniques to measure quality and consistency in marijuana products. But it wasn't long before he decided he could make the products himself. Today, Nug's 200,000 square foot headquarters is one of three buildings in Oakland where the company grows cannabis, extracts THC, and manufactures edibles. My business, you know, we've been in business over 10 years. We've built a brand. We have very wide distribution. We're, we're on 65% of the shelves in California with our branded products. And so we generate a lot of revenue. And we generate a lot of tax liability. And all of that is handled in cash. All of the, all of the accounts receivable from our vendors comes in in cash. All of our payroll is processed uh, uh, digitally and filed digitally, but paid in cash. And that includes the, the employees, you know, checks. We cash them in-house. We basically run a check cashing service in-house. I mean, it feels that way. Um, we pay all of our property taxes in cash. We pay all of our business taxes in cash. John used to take that duffel bag trip four times a year. Then his business picked up, and he had to start doing it every month. Now, it wasn't that John hadn't tried to get a bank account for the company. All the banks he approached just wouldn't do it. Early on, you'd just be walked out the door, you know, but very respectfully. And so you build a relationship with the branch manager, managers, you, you talk to them, and, and largely they, they do want your business. You know, they want to protect small businesses and provide services, and then they, they want their fees. You know, they're, they're banks. They want to do what, what banks do, um, but they can't. Their hands are tied. If you've paid any attention to the cannabis industry in recent years, you probably know that banking is a major issue. And we're going to get to how John found a workaround so he could quit carrying those bags of cash. But first, let's talk about where the problem came from. You may have heard that banks don't take pot money because their federal overlords say they can't handle the proceeds of an illegal business. That's not true. There's guidance from the U.S. Treasury on what banks can do to handle marijuana clients, but it means an extensive amount of paperwork and a high amount of risk. For bank executives, that could mean monetary penalties they have to pay personally or even criminal charges. And while some banks might accept a cannabis business at first, many get spooked and close the accounts later on. We talked to one bank that is taking cannabis money about what it means for them. Sunday Seafried is the CEO of Partner Colorado Credit Union, which has a division called Safe Harbor that provides banking to legal cannabis businesses. It's one of the country's rare financial institutions that is not only banking marijuana, but doing it openly. Safe Harbor opened its doors to cannabis money in 2015 after some lawyer Sunday knew told her about the problems Colorado's new cannabis companies were facing. I actually sat down with a couple of their clients and they started telling me about how they would go to the ATM at two o'clock in the morning with their children in the car seats in the back of the car while they would put 20 after 20 after 20 and I was like, why in the middle of the night? Well, you can't take thousands and thousands of dollars and put them into the ATM in the in midst of the day because you draw too much attention. And I think that really got me. She began trying to figure out how they could navigate the requirements of the country's anti-money laundering laws. Those laws, like the Bank Secrecy Act, set out strict requirements for banks that accept money from businesses that are breaking federal law. And in 2014, the Treasury's Financial Crimes Enforcement Network, or FinCEN, 
put out seven pages worth of instructions that explain to the banks what they have to do. Michael O'Neill is Safe Harbor's Bank Secrecy Act and anti-money laundering officer. He's in charge of making sure the credit union isn't getting itself into trouble. We say that it's every dollar is a cartel dollar until we can prove differently. And that's what we do every single day. The banks, the bankers, our private bankers downstairs are diligently watching every dollar that comes through. Because you're starting with the assumption that it's dirty, it's a huge effort to make sure that all the money is clean and accounted for. And if the bank doesn't do it right, the penalties are steep. Before my CPA would sit down and have lunch and go through the process, she said, you're going to read Orange is the New Black this weekend, and then we're going to have lunch. And I thought, well, that's a very strange request. You know, I'd heard about this book, but I hadn't read it. So that weekend, I had read that, and I went to lunch, and I had my full business plan there. And I had her looking through it, and she says, well, it looks like you're really planned well for the risk and everything here. She says, but are you willing to go to prison? Truly, that was a question I had to deal with in 2014. Sunday is married to the former CEO of a financial institution who was familiar with the risk she'd be taking on. So she had a pretty honest conversation with him as well. I sat him down and I said, look, I'm going to give you one chance to divorce me and protect your assets. That's it today, this month. That's it. After this month, it comes off the table, but I want you to know that you have the right, and I would understand that you would want to protect your assets from any prosecution that might come at me. And uh, he didn't take me up on it. I guess that was a good thing, but, you know. Safe Harbor now has about 260 clients. That's a number that includes both plant-touching businesses and other companies that service the industry. And when we spoke to Sunday and Michael in July, they were nearing a record $300 million in deposits that month. In one month this year, Safe Harbor filed 1,000 reports on their pot accounts, reports that FinCEN requires for any transaction involving illegal funds. If they didn't file these reports, Michael says he and Sunday could end up facing some extremely serious penalties. Because technically speaking, they could be considered money launderers. Here's Michael again. We're subject to a 10-year penalty and a $100,000 fine for every client that we help bring $1 million or more through the institution. Though last year, technically, we committed 1,118 counts under the Money Laundering Control Act with, let me make sure I'm clarifying that, but with that, we did it under the guidance issued by FinCEN and 12 regulatory examinations. And the feds are looking closely for any missteps. Federal regulators visited Safe Harbor this year for the 13th time in four years. Those exams happen at regular banks only about once a year. All that risk and the resources it takes for Safe Harbor to stay on top of it makes banking pretty expensive for cannabis companies. The credit union could charge a fee of up to $5,000 on every million these businesses bring through the door. There is no amount of money we can make as a financial institution to pay for the risk that we're taking. Because one BSA fine could be $100 million 
because it's based upon the number of reports that you file. And any dollar times a thousand reports just last month is a high fee to pay. So you cannot price a program for the risk that you take. So every day that you come in here, you, you ask yourself, doing the right thing, is it worth the risk to put the whole credit union at risk? And that is what we have done. That's why your big banks won't get into it. The difficulties Partner Colorado faces paint a pretty clear picture of why banks are apprehensive about taking weed money. FinCEN says there are about 550 banks and 160 credit unions that take cannabis money right now. That's an increase over previous years, but still not enough to serve all the businesses in the more than 40 states that have some form of legal pot. So a cottage industry of banking alternatives has taken off in the shadow of the marijuana banking crisis. We'd never heard of a banking alternative before we started researching this podcast. It's hard to think of another industry where there's a whole bunch of businesses that exist just to help you get a bank account. Some help the banks deal with the regulatory burden of cannabis cash. Others go directly to the dispensary or the grower, pick up their cash, and deposit it into an account. Banking alternatives have popped up because there really is a need and a vacuum for banking, normal banking, in the cannabis industry, which, you know, I don't need to go into that. It's just you can't walk into a Wells Fargo and say, hi, I'm from Dispensary X, Uh, please give me a bank account. They'll just be terrified and probably shut down your personal accounts if you have them with the bank. So banking alternatives seek to fill in that gap and the main the main responsibility that they have, their main job, is to take the cash out of the cannabis industry and make it so that businesses can pay each other, can pay, you know, their landlords, their taxes and whatnot in not cash. Sahar Ainasazian is an associate at the cannabis law firm Vicente Cedarberg, and she co-founded their banking and financial services department. Clients go to her for help finding banking, but she can't always promise it will work out. It's so hard for me when I have a client who has gone through rounds of interviews with a bank and given them every last piece of information they want and crossed all of their T's, dotted all of their I's, and at the very end they hear, we're just not ready to take businesses like you on. Maybe in the future, thanks for your time. It's it's terrible. It's disheartening. Those moments are the exact reason why so many in the cannabis industry are turning to banking alternatives. Because they'll do anything to not deal in cash anymore. Before she came to the firm, Sahar was the director of regulatory and governmental affairs for one of these companies called PayQuick. Yeah, so let's see if I still remember the elevator pitch for PayQuick. Um, they would uh, facilitate cash pickups for cannabis businesses and then would have that money be in their PayQuick account, which could be connected to that business's own bank account. Um, and businesses that were on the platform could pay and get paid uh, via PayQuick, kind of like you do with PayPal. Sahar says there's at least 40 or 50 of these companies out there. We wanted to know more about exactly how these banking facilitators work, so we tracked one down. 
Michelle Sullivan is the chief compliance officer and chief risk officer for Dama Financial. So when a cannabis-related business comes through the application process and all of the enhanced due diligence and review has been done, if they are approved for an account, they are provided an account um, and they are told where their deposits are held at which bank. But we actually do all the service on behalf of the bank. So when they when the customer has any questions, they call Dama Financial. The, the customers do not go to the branches and they do not contact the bank directly with questions. We actually service that all on their behalf. John made the decision to bring on one of these companies earlier this year. It picks up his cash and wires him the money. He can then pay his bills online and he can cut his employees' actual checks. But let's stop for a second. Basically, you have a company with quote-unquote dirty money, according to the feds. That money goes to a middleman alternative banking company. Then it comes out the other side, where a bank will now deal with the middleman. If you're like me, you might be thinking, wait, isn't that money laundering? No, it's the it's the opposite of money laundering, right? Money laundering would would mean you're taking cash from one business, uh, an illicit business, and you're putting it through a legitimate business, let's say you know, a car wash or you know, a bar or something, and you're mixing the money and depositing it in, into the bank. That's money laundering. We're the opposite. What we're achieving is full transparency. We're saying we are a cannabis business, we are licensed, we have policies and procedures in place for all of our cash management, and we have a third-party facilitator that audits us, and then we provide all of that due diligence and all of that transparency to the bank so that the bank is comfortable taking our deposits. Sahar agrees that transparency in cannabis banking is the key thing. She says she's heard about banking alternatives that have suddenly closed up shop after regulators began asking questions. That could leave a business owner high and dry. So she's got some rules for banking alternatives. You need to make sure you're licensed. You need to make sure you have a good relationship with your state regulators. You need to make sure that, above all else, you are following the FinCEN guidance to an absolute T, sometimes even more so than a traditional bank that's in this space because you are kind of an outlier, really. So that's how you do it legitimately. That's how you do it legally. It's up to the marijuana businesses to make sure their banking alternative is following those rules. In general, Sahar says she advises her clients to exhaust all their options to find a regular bank before they turn to one of these alternatives. But that's easier said than done. While there are some banks, like Safe Harbor, that are open about their willingness to deal in cannabis, the majority are very secretive about what they do. And their clients keep their secret. The worry is that if you tell everybody about your institution everyone in the industry is just going to storm it because there's so few and far in between and the institution will get overwhelmed, stop taking on cannabis clients and maybe even shut you down. So it's a self-preservation thing. It's not that I don't want you to do as well as I'm doing. It's that I have worked so hard and so long to just get this bank account for my business. I can't threaten that, I'm sorry.
Will it ever get easier to get a bank account? Some legislators think they have a solution. The Safe Banking Act, which stands for Secure and Fair Enforcement, would protect banks from some federal consequences if they take the money. And it passed the House recently. Many in the industry are extremely hyped on the bill. Lobbyists and cannabis trade groups are pushing for it and generally acting like it's going to change everything. But even if the bill moves forward, banks are still free to decide whether they want to accept cannabis money. And Sunday says the bill doesn't decrease the amount of work they have to do to ensure it's legal under the Bank Secrecy Act. While the SAFE Act will assist us with um, the legal risk, nothing eliminates the BSA risk. It will remain the same. The requirements that we have to go through at this point in time to know that money, know that business, and know those owners will never change. So that is a heavy burden that we will continue to have to carry even after the SAFE Act. John's been trying to solve Nug's banking problem for years, but he told us he didn't feel like he could wait for a bank to give him an account. Should we have waited? Uh, Could we have waited until more full-service banking comes online? No. My business is too big. I have 200 employees. We just raised money as a Series A equity round. I have different financial obligations and different personal obligations. So having a banking relationship, just a banking relationship, was critical. So we made the right choice, and it's been very helpful to our business. We met up with John at a conference a few months after Nug brought on their alternative. Of course, he's still holding out hope a regular bank will take him on. But he's happy for now. You're now several months in Mm -hmm. to your relationship with your banking Mm -hmm. facilitator. Is everything good? It's working. It's working? Mm -hmm. And it's, it's having the change on your business that you wanted it to? Yes. From an operational perspective, it's still very challenging. It's not the same... It's not that convenient and that easy on a day-to-day basis. But the big things have changed drastically. Payroll, for example, has changed drastically. I receive a paycheck by check now instead of cash, and that is amazing for me. I pay my bills using credit cards now because my money is digital. And this isn't about compliance. It's always been compliance, but now I actually get to enjoy the the, the world of digital money that everybody else is so accustomed to. And if I feel that way, I know my employees feel the exact same way. You know, it's a different world now, so we're happy about that. Thank you for listening to the second episode of Law 360 Explores Legalization. This episode and this series was written by Diana Novak-Jones. It was produced and mixed by me, Stephen Trader, and our executive producer is Amber McKinney. Many others at Law 360 also helped make this show possible, including Ann Erda, Ian Toms, and Ed Beeson. We'd also like to give a big thank you to the National Cannabis Industry Association and to Alexandra Rush from the Rosen Group. She was a huge help in setting up some of our interviews. Music for the show comes from Tribe Track, Freedom Trail Studio, Wayne Jones, and Elephant. If you want to know more about the show, please check out our website at law360.com explores. 
And if you like what you heard today, head on over to Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening and hit subscribe. It's a five-part series, and we hope you'll listen to all of it. And if you like the series, or maybe even you love it, please let us know by leaving a review. It helps other people find the show, and we'd love to hear from you. Thanks.